The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you to turn with me now in your Bible to Psalm 104. We continue in our Apostles' Creed series tonight. At home, we have a, one of our favorite children's storybook Bibles has an account of creation that begins, Do you like to make things? God likes to make things. I believe that human industry is a sign that we are made in the likeness of our Creator. Many commentators believe that Moses wrote the book of Genesis to counter many of the pagan views of creation that were prominent in the ancient world. Rather than being a mere accident of the cosmos or the result of gods at war with one another, the Bible teaches that the world is a result of the imaginative loving initiative of Almighty God who chose and desired to reveal His glory to a people made in this image who would inhabit this planet that we call Earth. Psalm 104 is a beautiful poem that's intended to direct our hearts to notice the wonders of all that God has made that we might stand back in awe at the wonder of who God truly is. Please follow as I read. I will be skipping part of the psalm in the middle uh, for brevity's sake, but plan to cover most of the text and and refer to those verses later on in the message. So please follow as I read Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with a deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills, they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys clench their thirst, beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches, from your lofty abode you water the mountains, the earth is satisfied the fruit of your work. I will skip over verses 14 through 23 and refer to them later on as we consider the ways in which God sustains his creation. And I pick up with this refrain of praise in verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. 
The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and the Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it up to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him. For I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Father, I ask that once again, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Recently, my son and some of his classmates had an assignment for school in which they had to create a small replica of one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And their particular assignment was to make a replica of the Great Pyramid at Giza. And it inspired me to learn a little bit more about the Great Pyramid. And I learned that this, this remarkable wonder was 756 feet long on each side. 450 feet high, had 2.3 million blocks of stone that made up the pyramid, each weighing on average two and a half tons. Now, it's amazing when you consider that using very limited survey tools back in that day, that no side of that pyramid is more than eight inches longer than any other side. And in fact, all four corners are perfectly arranged along the points of the compass. Now, tradition has it that the Great Pyramid was built in about a 20-year time span with teams of up to 100,000 men working, perhaps around the clock. And estimates tell us that it would have required moving 800 tons of stone every day and placing 12 blocks in place every hour around the clock for 20 years. Well, our school project was slightly less ambitious than that. We began with a a Lego model and cut out four triangular pieces of drywall. This was spare drywall and not from the walls in our home. And used mud compound to paste it together properly and uh, came up with, I think, a pretty decent project. We can ask Mr. Walker what he thought of uh, this project after the service. Scientists, engineers, and historians marvel at how these ancient peoples built these pyramids. We, they still argue today over how they actually pulled it off. And yet this is the oldest and the largest of all the ancient wonders of man known today. Well... The wonders of man, both ancient and modern, are but shadows of the wonders of what God has made 
There are many marvels in creation. Consider that they say that there are 350 billion galaxies in the known universe. And our one Milky Way galaxy has upwards of 400 billion stars just in our galaxy. It was to Abraham that God said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. I also understand that at the microscopic level, even one simple, single bacteria cell in its DNA has over one million codes of instructions to guide and direct respiration and reproduction for that creature. These are the things that pose great difficulty to naturalistic evolution. In order to explain how does all this information in order, how can it be brought together from merely impersonal, chaotic forces? The creation boasts in signs of intelligence, of a personal maker with incredible power and wisdom. The human mind can hardly fathom the vastness of creation, nor comprehend the intricate detail that lies at the very foundation of all of biological life on earth. We've read from our psalm how God delights in his creation. Things both great and small He has pronounced everything good in his eyes. Last week, Pastor Light referenced the book of Job, that we might stand in awe at God, who is both Almighty and Father. Well, tonight we consider what it means to believe in this God, the Father Almighty, who is the maker of heaven and earth. Sadly, in a fallen world, people worship the created things rather than the Creator. Even us as followers of Jesus can get easily tangled up in many unbiblical views about the world and its origins and how things came to be. And we need to repent and renew our faith and worship our God as our Creator. Well, in this Psalm 104, this wonderful poem, we are taught to worship God, who is Father Almighty who is creator, sustainer, and our redeemer. Well, this psalm opens up with a refrain of praise. The psalmist refers to our maker as both great and beautiful. Notice the emphasis on an image of how the Lord is clothed in splendor and majesty. He is the glorious king of all of creation. And his, his garment is like light, stretching even the highest heavens, stretching out like a tent before him. We recall how Solomon, as he dedicated the temple, proclaimed that not even the highest heavens could contain the greatness and the majesty of our God. Well, in verses 3 through 9, we see how the psalmist draws attention to the power and the wisdom of God as revealed in creation. Notice in verses 3 and following a series of action verbs that describe God going about the work of creation like a master craftsman. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. 
He demonstrates complete sovereign mastery over all of creation. He set the earth on its foundation. He covered the earth with the deeps of the oceans. He appointed the very places of the mountains and the valleys. He set their boundary places. Scholars have noted how this psalm parallels the order of creation found in Genesis 1. And it's from that first chapter of the Bible that we learn that all things came to pass by the word of God's power, by the spoken word. I love the image that C.S. Lewis gives us in The Magician's Nephew, the, the opening book of the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan, the Christ figure of that story, when he is observed creating Narnia, he does it with song. He sings the world into creation. And I believe Lewis's imagination is drawing upon this beautiful picture of how God brings things to pass by the word of his power. Joyful words. Singing words. Well, in great contrast to the pagan view of gods that are not personally engaged, we get gain from our text that this is a God who is actively involved. He sovereignly oversees the construction and the maintenance of his creation. And we can go on and refer back from Hebrews 11.3 that uh, speaks about the word of God's power. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The Bible trumps all modern myths that seek to explain away the world in mere materialistic terms. Well, not only is God's power on display in this psalm, we also see God's wisdom. It says in verse 5 that God set the earth on its foundations that it might never be moved. And this is what, something we might call phenomenological language which is simply saying in the ancient times without modern tools, the authors of Scripture would describe things the way they see it. A canvas, a canopy over the earth, or here in terms of the earth being set on foundations. And what is intended by that language is to communicate that the earth, by the wisdom of God, is a secure dwelling place. God provides safety and provision for his people to flourish, those who bear his image, to fill the earth, to subdue it. I marvel in modern times how how scientists and philosophers have identified what has been called the anthropic principle. That There's this principle in higher education that observes how the universe seems to have been fine-tuned. That fine-tuned to make it possible for life to flourish, especially intelligent life that's able to observe the witness and testimony that in a hostile universe, what's remarkable and seems against all odds that life would actually occur here on planet Earth. A couple of examples of this principle is the very nature of water. How we know that water is the only non-metallic substance that expands and becomes less dense as it freezes from its liquid state to its solid state. 
And that's what actually makes life possible in ponds, in lakes, and in the ice caps of the North and the South Pole. Without that principle, most plant and animal life would perish by the, the nature of, of the freezing ice. There are many other such examples. There's another principle called the Goldilocks principle, that, that the earth is placed in such a way from the sun, it's not too hot, and it's not too cold. That, and in fact, even our solar system is just the right distance from the center of the Milky Way galaxy. That there's just enough carbon, there's just enough hydrogen, there's just enough oxygen. There's so many principles that even people who were agnostic, as they study these principles, have become theists. Recognizing that, that somebody has been monkeying with the system, that has fine-tuned the universe to make life possible against all odds and chance. Well, you and I know, and we can affirm the testimony of this psalm as it says in verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Exploring this text caused me to remember back to uh, the second semester of my freshman year in college. It was during that time that I began to really grapple, and I was lured into believing in what we call naturalistic evolution. The class I was taking was called Biological Sciences. It was a pre-med required class, and, and a very clever and confident professor proceeded to explain to us or present arguments that that all of the world's physical and biological phenomena could easily be accounted for with materialistic explanations. And there as I sat as a rather ignorant and fairly brand new Christian, feeling quite helpless and defenseless as his professor began to systematically dismantle all of the supposed claims of Christianity— and, and other accounts of special creation. Now, at this time, I did not realize this professor was using largely straw man arguments, attacking the very weakest arguments and not really taking on robust Christianity. What also I did not realize is that what he was presenting was not facts and evidence, but dogma, presenting a kind of faith in naturalism, a faith, and in fact, in his case, probably more theistic evolution, which is based on many unchecked assumptions. Well, at the time, I simply had to concur. In order to preserve my intellectual integrity, I simply had to assent that, wow, well, I guess evolution must be true, despite what I had accepted as a young Christian. And uh, there was a time where I I kind of felt this high of kind of snobbish superiority, where I I felt like, well, now I I was in the know. That uh, along with other sophisticated people who had moved on from silly, childish myths about creation. Well, thankfully, in God's province that summer, I I went to work for a Christian sports camp, this large camp called Camp Kanakuk in southern Missouri. And uh, one of our teachers that summer made a very profound presentation on special creation and creation science. And in that presentation, he exposed many of the weaknesses, many of the holes in macroevolution. And he was able to document 
many scientists, many non-Christian scientists who affirm that evolutionary theory did not stand on very firm ground. And he also offered much evidence for special creation while raising very serious questions, exposing evolution as a naturalistic myth. Well, since that time, as I've studied and explored these, these matters, to this day, while I consider creation science perhaps being a bit overly dogmatic, and, and I tend to lean towards uh, uh, ID or intelligent design theory, I'm very grateful for this teacher who very boldly helped me to recognize that the conflict between evolution and biblical explanations of origins was not just a matter of facts, but truly a matter of belief. Okay? See, macro-evolution in many, many ways is another religion based upon unexamined assumptions. It reduces the world in such a way that there is no room for God. Everything has to be explained in very materialistic terms. In contrast to that, every single one of us should be able to accept what might be called microevolution. Microevolution is a simple observation that plants and animals make adaptations to their environment. This is something breeders have known for millennia. But in contrast, macroevolution suggests that species can transform from one species to another over eons of time. But as you examine the data, it appears that's really just a leap of faith. The historical record does not support it with sound evidence. And they have yet to find any biological basis for such radical transformations from one species to another. As it says in God's word, like begets like. And we can trust it as God's word about not only origins, but how we have come to find everything that we discover in the biological and physical world. I say all of this to challenge us to think about when we say that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. We are making a pledge of allegiance to a worldview, a scriptural-based worldview, and its divine author, in contrast to a worldview of man that depends upon its own wisdom and power to explain life and its origins. I respect science. I appreciate many of its discoveries. And yet I am not intimidated, nor am I ashamed to affirm belief in special creation. Christians can maintain their intellectual integrity with a firm and robust faith in God, not only as creator and yet sustainer of the earth. Contrary to a view of God that's deistic, that sees God as a mere clockmaker who sets the earth and the world and the solar system on its course and withdraws, a, a God that is not involved with his creation, we learn from Scripture that God is involved, that like a loving Father, he is actively engaged and lovingly provides for his creatures. In verses 10 and following, we see this repeated reference to the fact that God 
is actively caring for his creatures. He makes the springs gush forth to provide drink for the beasts of the field, to quench the thirst of the wild donkeys. The birds sing in his branches, the branches of the trees he has made. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of God's work. It's God that causes the grass to grow, to feed the livestock, grow plants that man cultivates for his food. This is not a God who checks out, who is far removed from his creation. He did not merely set the universe on its course only check in periodically for progress reports. No, this is a God who is actively engaged with the world he has made. He is also a loving provider, as it says in our text, that he provides wine to gladden the hearts of men, oil to cause their face to shine, bread to strengthen their bodies. In verse 19, we see this reference that God made the moon to mark off the seasons and the sun for its setting. Many commentators have noted how the very liturgical calendar of worship in ancient Israel followed, in many ways, followed the patterns of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, contrary to pagan worshipers who worshiped these celestial bodies, the Israelites recognized these as the wonders that God made and used them simply to mark off days and weeks, months, and years. They provided the structure in which Israelites would orient their work, their rest, and their celebrations of worship. Now, I want you to also notice in verse 21 that how personal God is engaged. He says in verse 21 that the young lions seek their food from God. And this idea is echoed in verse 27 when it says, These all look to you to give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. You almost get the picture of an animal trainer just lovingly feeding the animal by hand, even great, uh, terrific, powerful creatures. Well, here's the question. What difference does it make whether or not we believe in a God who is active and who provides for us? Well, I believe the difference is similar to that of an orphan versus a child who grows up in the secure embrace of his father's love. Orphans, by circumstance, lack the the presence of a loving parent, and so are left, in many cases, to their own wits, like Oliver Twist, like the Herdmans from the best Christmas pageant ever, who have to resort to stealing and live a life of fear, not knowing where their next meal will come from. In contrast, children who grow up with loving parents who lack these concerns are enabled to grow on to be healthy, to be generous, to give freely because they have been given much. Those who believe in God, the Father Almighty, who is maker of heaven and earth, have a a father who has adequately provided for them. So I think the challenge for us to think about is to question, is my walk with God, is it characterized by the first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, who were led by Moses in the wilderness, and who resorted to grumbling and complaining, worried about where their next meal would come from, worried about 
why did God provide for them water in the wilderness? Or are we learning the path of Jesus, who endured 40 days of wilderness and fasting, but also learned humble dependence upon God, his Father, who actively sustained him through his pilgrimage on earth? Do you believe that God has supplied the earth with all of the resources necessary for the flourishing of human life until Christ returns? I think that's a challenging question in the day and the age in which we live. I I believe that there is grounds in this text to believe that despite the experts who insist that we are depleting all of the earth's resources and quickly destroying the environment— And yes, why we are called to a healthy form of biblical Christian conservation. In the spirit of subduing the earth, we can believe from God's word that the Father pledges to provide for his people, to sustain his people and his creatures until the very end. Something to think about. Well, another principle that we learn beyond this text in all of Scripture, a creation did not act by one personality, that that creation came into being in a three-in-one personhood, that there is a, we have a triune God who acted in creation. In Genesis, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the first chapters of John's Gospel, the letter to the Colossians and the Hebrews, we see that creation came about through the Son of God. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. The Father made all things good and upright through the Son. And yet we know early on from Genesis that all of God's work was tainted by man's rebellion and suffered curse as a consequence. And we see the element of this curse towards the end of our psalm. Here, the psalmist writes about hope of the day coming when all sinners would be consumed and the wicked would be no more. Right here in the midst of a worship refrain, where he says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I rejoice in the Lord, and so forth. God's good creation was spoiled. And yes, we know that God at times cleaned house. He sent the great flood to wipe out the earth to start over again. God was tempted in the days of Moses to wipe out the Israelites and rebuild a nation through Moses. And yet the Lord stayed his hand and chose to long suffer with his people. Friends, the the very one, the one through whom all of creation came into existence is also the same one through whom all things will be redeemed. Paradise lost, will become creation regained. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Building on this grand vision, John offers these words from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, we were not created to live apart from God. Our separation from God is a result of the fall. It's a consequence of our sin. God's desire is to dwell with us, to restore us, to make a new heavens and new earth, to be with us, to be our God and for us to be his people. And so God will do everything necessary to remedy the problem, to bridge the great divide, to bring about restoration a restoration that will so be beyond our ability to recognize. The old will be made new again. About a year and a half ago, I completed the second, I believe, of two home projects of restoring some old furniture. For a time before that, my wife and I had wanted to get a a cedar chest, a genuine cedar chest, and we found one on Craigslist that we could afford, And uh, it was a little banged up, but it had a lot of promise to it. And so we went about the work of sanding it down, stripping it, sanding it, getting all the dents and and, uh, divots out of it across the the top and the sides. And once we sanded it down real good, we chose the right color of stain, and we stained it, and then went through the process of finishing it and putting the polyurethane on it. You put a layer on, and you sand it. Another layer, and you sand it. And we got sought counsel. Actually, for many people in this church, helped us, walked us through step-by-step step how to do that well. We were so pleased with the result of restoring this piece of furniture. We did something similar with our dining table, which is a much bigger project that had a lot more to it in terms of stripping down and getting all the old finish and the old polyurethane off of it. And it makes me think about when God goes about the work of restoring, he has to strip things down. He has to remove all the dents, all the cracks, all of the damage. He is doing that work in us. Friends, you and I are a new creation. God is working a new creation. God is redeeming everything which has fallen and broken and needs to be restored in us in order to make us like Christ once again. Friends, only God, only God can fix what is wrong in his creation. And only God can fix what is wrong in you and I to make us a new creation, a special creation, a trophy of his praise and his glory as we are remade in the likeness of Christ once again. Going back to those great pyramids in Egypt, you know, there are those who believe that aliens visited Earth and gave instructions to the Egyptians how to build those pyramids because it's so, it's unbelievable that, that these early peoples would have known how to build it. So it must have come from somewhere else. I think that that same kind of skepticism, it, it parallels in people who are skeptical of our Creator God that not only do they do a disservice to the ingenuity and brilliance of early man who has made the image of God, it's ultimately an affront and assault on the God who has made all things well and has given man wonderful gifts and tools to do remarkable things. 
you know, the pyramids were a brilliant discovery. We understand that these pyramids were built because of the Egyptians' obsession with the afterlife. That they wanted to build these great structures and bury their pharaohs so that they could be transported into the afterlife. And they would stuff their treasures and their artwork and everything that they might need in the afterlife. These were a people who spent their whole lives preparing for death. Friends, there's actually something we can learn from them. Not that we want to be obsessed with death, but are we preparing for the next world? Are we preparing for the life ever after? And it doesn't involve building great monuments to ourselves, not to dwell in tombs that are dead and decaying and do not provide anything lasting. But rather, it reminds us that that we are a people built for eternity and that we have a new creation that God promises to work in us, to bring through us, and to completely transform this fallen world. Friends, when we say we believe... In God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we are not just assenting to the fact that God is our creator and our sustainer and our redeemer. We are exercising faith that he is a God who will supply our needs, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Friends, what awaits us is a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth that Jesus has gone on ahead to prepare for us so that you and I might enjoy the abundance of the Father in his presence for all eternity. Let us praise him and pray. Father, we thank you that you have promised that you will bring out renewal and restoration, not only in us, but in all of your good creation. We thank you that through Jesus Christ, the one through whom all things were made, that all things will be remade once again. And uh, we long for that day when we will see him, see our Savior's face. O come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in your name. Amen.